In last week's news, we heard that the immense hack of millions of government personnel files likely included the background checks the government does for security clearances. This caught my attention because I was the subject of a background check when I was an assistant U.S. attorney a million years ago. The form you fill out for a security clearance asks the names and contact information of every supervisor you've ever had in every job, including summer jobs, and all of your family members, parents, siblings, spouses, ex-spouses, and kids. It asks for the address of every place you've ever lived since 1937, which for you youngsters who might have trouble figuring out how old someone is, that's many years before I was born. (laughs) And that means that I had to scramble for the addresses of every place that I had ever lived. Then the FBI comes and contacts all the people that you've named, visits most of them in person, plus your next-door neighbors, whether you know them or not, to verify what's on the form and ask questions about your character. When it's all over, you have the feeling that the government knows pretty much everything there is to know about you. It still turns out not to be foolproof. Today, we learn about the process the people of ancient Israel use instead of this, and it isn't foolproof either. This morning, we continue our summer sermon series focusing on the Old Testament stories that tell us how Israel went from being a loose confederation of tribes to becoming a kingdom, the stories about Saul, David, and Solomon. Last week, in spite of the prophet Samuel's misgivings and God's dire warning, the people demanded a king. This week, we pick up the story after Saul has been anointed king and already proven to be a colossal disappointment. So disappointing that God is over him, has moved on, and already has someone else in mind to take his place. Now, you might be curious to know what King Saul did that was so disappointing. I was curious about that, too. And so I read back a few verses and found it. I was reminded of something Mark Twain said. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. (laughs) Most preachers and commentators intentionally avoid dealing with the details of Saul's falling out of favor with God because they, quote, complicate our hearing of the story with 21st century ears, unquote. Although I'm not making Saul's mistake our primary focus this morning, I'm not going to skip it either, because I respect your ability to deal with the whole complicated Bible. The reason that Saul fell out of favor with God is that according to the story, Samuel told Saul that God ordered him to utterly destroy the Amalekites, and Saul only mostly destroyed the Amalekites saving the best of the sheep and the cattle for, Saul said, a sacrifice later. I will tell you flat out that I have no problem saying that these passages should be read as stories, not as history. They reveal truth, but not necessarily fact. They reveal the way things looked to people in the ancient Middle East in 1000 B.C., They show the way people related to God in 1000 B.C. 
I have no problem saying that the Bible was inspired by God, but written, translated, and interpreted by imperfect human beings bound by their culture. So it's my conviction that we learned from Jesus, in Jesus, and through Jesus, that our God does not order anybody to destroy anyone, utterly or otherwise, and that a theology that said God does is dangerous. But in the story, Saul has to go. The cleaned-up version is that Saul didn't do exactly what God told him to do, and so even though Saul reigns until his death in battle many years later, God sets in motion a process to replace him. God sends Samuel south to Bethlehem, an area that hasn't yet been claimed by Israel. God has already provided a king there among Jesse's sons. Samuel is reluctant because he knows that the people in Bethlehem will be nervous when he shows up. When high officials of the king's court come to a village, it can only mean trouble. Either they'll think Samuel is Saul's man, come to assert some kind of a claim over them, or if he's not Saul's man, that puts them at risk with Saul. So Samuel's visit would be a no-win situation for the folks in Bethlehem. Besides, Samuel knows that King Saul would see all of this as an act of treason. It is hazardous to anoint a king when there is already a king. So God provides a cover for Samuel by telling him to go to Bethlehem and make a sacrifice. Now, that sounds pretty much as though God is telling Samuel to use a deception. Let's just go on with the story, okay? <laughs> Jesse, a farmer with no obvious family pedigree, parades seven of his strapping sons before the old prophet. Samuel looks at the first boy, Eliab, and muses, surely this is God's anointed. But whispering in his ears, God warns that Samuel should not look at the height of his stature or the beauty of his appearance. They'd fallen for that trap before. When we first meet Saul, back in chapter 9, he's described as a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else. I keep picturing Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. So glad you know this, who, according to the song, ate four dozen eggs every morning to help him get large. So God is saying, no more tall, handsome guys. One of those was more than enough. Besides, says God, mortals look on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. In Hebrew, this word heart means will and intelligence. It means character. So the drama intensifies in the story. Samuel looks at the other six young men, older to younger, one after the other, and rejects them all. Have you other sons, he asks. Well, says Jesse, there's that other one, the younger one, but he's out keeping the sheep. He's just too young and unimportant to have been brought in from the fields to meet the kingmaker. Go get him, says Samuel. And then we're introduced to the greatest king in the history of Israel. After being warned that which we should see more the way that God sees, 
that we should look at the heart as opposed to the appearance, listen to how the storyteller introduces the young shepherd boy, David. He was ruddy, which most likely means something like he has a healthy glow, he looks vigorous. He was ruddy, he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. We've just been told his appearance is irrelevant, but the narrator can't restrain himself from commenting on it. It's an ironic and very human confession of what it is that we actually notice. Then and there, Samuel anoints David. David says nothing, and you have to wonder what this kid is thinking. Does he wonder, for example, do I have any say in this? It isn't made public yet, but from now on, David, David is the divinely designated successor to Saul. The rest of 1 Samuel explains how this comes to pass as David competes with Saul in warfare and for the favor of the people. All of David's politics, his guerrilla action and intrigue, marriages of convenience, questionable service with the Philistines, they're all trumped by the fact that God has anointed him to be Saul's successor. What did David have that, Saul, that God saw? It wasn't age, wisdom, status, credentials, or stature. He was the baby of a big family, and any of you who come from big families can tell just how much attention the youngest of eight gets. Maybe his older brothers called him the pest. Maybe they told him to get lost when they had really important things to do, like work in the fields or going to war or standing proud before Samuel the prophet. But the Lord does not see as mortals see. From what we know about King Saul, we can guess that what God is looking for and sees in David is a committed heart. And for all the intrigue and politics in this story, the message to us is encouraging. God makes the least expected choice. Expectations are reversed. The last is made first. As the Apostle Paul puts it, God's power is made perfect in weakness. Whatever he becomes later on, David comes from the margins of his society. He begins as a nobody. He's young, small, untested, unimpressive. Last week, we saw that God went along with Israel's demand for a king, a normal, very human demand. But now we see that God's standards transcend the normal. God chooses a king that doesn't look like any king the people would expect. The boy wasn't even called in from the pastures, after all. We all know the many ways in which people in our and every age are tempted to look at outward appearance. We see it in racism and sexism. We elected the first African-American president just seven years ago, and we have yet to elect a woman, an Asian, a Latino, a Native American. We can see our attraction to appearance in the way our culture idolizes glitzy automobiles and fashionable clothing, tight abdominal muscles and youthful beauty, and in the way that we forget again and again that these things have nothing to do with a person's character and commitments. We see it in the way people tend to dismiss people whose gifts aren't showy or obvious, 
or who have something in their history like mental illness or addiction or a physical limitation. This story reminds us that this isn't how God sees. God chooses people that we might cast aside as nobodies, as people with limited potential. When God has a job that needs doing, God chooses these people. And this might mean that God chooses us, you and me. It's so easy to say, who me? When an opportunity for leadership or action comes along, it's easy to say, I'm not powerful, I'm not wise, my past is too checkered, I don't have the credentials, I'm too old, I'm too young. That is not how God sees you. History is full of unlikely heroes. Rosa Parks, Oscar Schindler, Abraham Lincoln even. People nobody would have expected to emerge as leaders. But even if you shy away from being the kind of leader or hero that becomes famous, God may be choosing you to be an ordinary hero, the kind of hero that makes a difference in a few lives or even one person's life, the kind that has a committed heart. We know that God has plenty of jobs that need doing, most of which don't require a security clearance, but which do require a committed heart. What is it that God might be choosing you to do right now? What job is it that in spite of appearances, you are the right person for the job? As the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.